justice to be had in a country where the criminals seem to make the rules. We catch up with corruption buster Paul O'Sullivan to find out how he's doing. Welcome, Paul. Uh, good, good day to you and uh, good day to all the viewers. Well, a Hawks cop and a senior state advocate have appeared in court on charges of corruption following an investigation done by yourself. How were you mandated to do this investigation? Well, actually, we were not mandated uh, to do a corruption investigation. Um, our client, uh, a well-known waste company, I'll make no bones about it, a company called Interwaste, uh, they're part of a, a very large global French-owned uh, corporation. Um, they had been defrauded by one of their managers um, a couple of years ago, and the the company had appointed another firm of forensic investigators to open a fraud docket, which they had done. And in May 2021, I think the offences are alleged to have, the original fraud offences are alleged to have taken place in 2020. And in May 2021, the state declined to prosecute, saying it was a civil matter. Now, that always sets off red flags in our mind because either the state say it's a civil matter because they're too lazy to investigate it or they say it's a civil matter because they're compromised and they normally get compromised by the accused. So we were asked to relook at the fraud docket and to determine whether or not there were grounds for making written representation to the Director of Public Prosecutions in Johannesburg. So when we took the docket that had been opened, the first thing we realized was that although the docket was opened for $6.5 million, the actual amount of the um, fraud was far in excess of that. It was closer to $14 million. So then we started looking at the reasons why the docket had been declined to prosecute, and things just didn't add up. And when we looked at the investigation, we found that some of the witness statements looked, to us anyway, they looked to be contrived. So we decided to go back over some of those witnesses. Now, when I say witnesses, I also mean possible accused persons in the fraud matter. So we centered on what we considered to be the main accomplice in the fraud against interwaste. And when I say he was an accomplice, he wasn't involved with Interwaste at all. He'd been involved in the money laundering process by the Interwaste employee, a senior manager at Interwaste that had committed the fraud. So we targeted him and we went to see him. And when we cornered him with certain evidence, he threw his hands in the air and said, look, I have to come clean. And we said, well, yes, that's what we were hoping for. But then he said, no, but I have to tell you that there's, there's more to this than meets the eye. And he explained how uh, he would got dragged into um, a whole lot of corruption between the main accused in the fraud, which is the ex-interwaste employee, and um, the, uh, the persons who were supposed to be investigating him. And that led to us deciding that we need to change tack here 
and start a corruption investigation before we continue with the fraud investigation. And that's what we did. We then started a, um, a corruption investigation. And what did you find? Well, mm, you know, corruption is not one of these offenses where the accused persons leave a very clear audit trail. You know, um, if, if, if you go back 20 years, I investigated the then uh, chief of police, Jackie Celebi, and it was very difficult to track down what exactly had happened and how the money had changed hands. And the clues that were left were mostly hearsay clues or colloquial evidence given by people who were on the sidelines. Um, but his biggest downfall was, of course, the state witness, a chap by the name of Glenn Agliotti. And Glenn Agliotti admitted uh, that, in fact, he paid him vast sums of money. And instead of writing in the, the checkbook cash on the check stuff, you know, in those days we had checks, we don't have them anymore. Um, uh, he used to write on the check stub, uh, cash Jackie or cash uh, JX, which is Jackie Celebi. So we were able to relate those um, extracts of the checkbook to periods in Jackie Celebi's life where neither he nor his wife drew any money for an ATM or spent any of their cards at shops. So for a period of three or four months, they didn't buy a loaf of bread or a pint of milk, and we, we couldn't understand how they were surviving. So we applied the same mentality here, and when we started digging, we were able to get evidence, and the evidence was um, prima facie evidence, without a doubt. For example, the captain... Um, a career policeman um, in, 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 in the police, uh, a captain in DPCI, uh, who you would expect to be beyond reproach, uh, went on a hunting trip with the accused a week after the case was dropped. And accompanying them on the hunting trip was the prosecutor, and the prosecutor and the captain uh, went uh, on this hunting trip with the accused person that they were supposed to be investigating, and they each shot a wildebeest. And fortunately, the ranch where they went to do the hunting trip, we went to visit there. I went there. I established exactly what was going on there. Um, and then we were able to obtain copies of the, um, the hunting permit because if you want to shoot a wild animal, you need a hunting permit. And the hunting permit was issued by the licensed hunter at the ranch in the northwest province. And rather than fill out the hunting permit himself, he just gave the permit to Captain Tibeti and he gave another permit to, to senior state advocate Mathabani I said, here, I'll fill in your details and sign it, which they both did. And they put their own ID numbers, their own home addresses, and their telephone numbers and their vehicle registration numbers and their own signature. Now, if that's not prima facie evidence, I'm not quite sure what is, but it was in their own handwriting 
and we had the handwriting analyzed and we satisfied that um, the individuals in question filled out their own arrest warrants, if you like. Um, so what we did then, um, we decided to open a criminal docket for corruption and park the fraud investigation because we felt that the, um, the fraud investigation itself was quite complex and it might take longer to get that over the line than a corruption investigation where you've got solid evidence and the the evidence that we were able to prove beyond reasonable doubt was the hunting trip and the payment for the hunting trip by the accused in the fraud case um, which was part of the case the rest of the case is only based on hearsay but it amounts to payments of between sixty and eighty thousand rand in cash to the prosecutor and the the police official, and a case of a case of whiskey to the police official. So, um, unfortunately, those two gentlemen and the person that bribed them are now facing potentially at least fifteen years in prison each. Um, but having adduced our case, we decided then. Who do we go to with this? In the past, we would have gone to IPID, but we we are fully aware that IPID are strict, shall I say. They don't have enough resources to cope with all the work in front of them. So I decided uh, we would go to the then divisional head of detectives in in the police, who is also responsible for the police internal anti-corruption unit. So um, earlier this year, we went to see um, General Sabir, and he introduced us to um, Brigadier uh, Chabalala, who is the, uh, the head of the police anti-corruption unit. And at the first meeting with him, he brought with him a warrant officer Klopper, who's since been promoted to captain, Captain Klopper. And between them, they carried out a very thorough investigation. Um, they were able to obtain a lot more evidence than we were able to obtain because obviously the police have greater powers of search and seizure. They were able to, for example, get the cellular phone coordinates of Lessing uh, Tibeti and Matabani and they were able to place them at the game farm for a long weekend where they were shooting these animals now if you can place the three people on the scene and that corroborates the, the paper trail then you've really got an open and shut case and then eventually it reached a point where they decided they were going to have them arrested and that's what happened um, and ironically, they were arrested the day they were arrested two or three hours after I boarded a plane to Sao Paulo. So when I got off the plane in Sao Paulo uh, in the afternoon, which here would have been late at night, um, there's a message on my phone informing me that the persons in question have been arrested. So uh, I'm very pleased with, with the, the productivity of the police in that regard. No. Going after the corrupt and the crooked has a price. Um, have there been threats flying? Has anybody received death threats? Um, yeah, so one of the witnesses, um, 
there there were threats against him. Um, I'm used to it. I'm get, I get threats all the time, um, and there've been I don't know how many attempts there have been. I don't keep a record uh, to 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 kill me, um, but you know it just goes to the territory. And <laughs> strangely enough, while I was in uh, Brazil, um, you know I was almost subject to an armed robbery. So <laughs> we were in Rio de Janeiro, and we'd been to visit the. Uh, what do they call it, Cristo Redentor, the, the Christ Redemption, you know, the big statue. And we just left there, and we drove around the corner, and there's a couple of guys on motorbikes with machine guns who wanted us to stop. So I just drove straight at them and then drove away. And um, one of my daughters said, Daddy, um, why didn't you just surrender? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Sullivan. We don't surrender. So, you know, that's mentality. That's the mentality that I apply. And I think if you take a stand against corruption, no matter what field you're in, um, and there's some very brave people in, in, in the civil service or working for state-owned companies who see corruption and they decide, uh-uh, they're not going to be a part of it. They take a stand against it. And the result is that eventually the people involved in the corruption get arrested and prosecuted. Um, Dudamayeni is a classic example of the same. And we also have to remember that in our police service, we have people um, who fight corruption as well. And we tend to forget that and we think the police are all corrupt. You know, the reason I went to see General Sabir is quite simple. Um, I've known General Sabir for a number of years. And in 2015, um, well, let's go back a bit earlier. In, in December 2014, um, on, on Christmas Eve, Anwar Dramat, the general Anwar Dramat, who was the head of the, the DPCI, or the Vorks as we call them, uh, he was unlawfully suspended by the then Minister of Police, and they appointed a guy in his place called Ntlemeza, and Clemenza, of course, is a corrupter, was, and still, probably still is, a corrupt individual. And now he was appointed as acting head of the DPCI. And the first thing he did in January of 2015 was to suspend and then dismiss unlawfully um, then Major General uh, Shadrach Sabir, who was head of the Hawks in Gauteng. And I took a stand against that, and I went to see... Um, uh, what do they call it? The foundation. Um, oh dear, oh dear, the mind, it slipped my memory now. But I went to see, we got support and we took litigation steps. And eventually, all these years later, uh, Shadrach Sabir got his job back. And when he got his job back, he got quickly promoted from Major General to Lieutenant General and is now Deputy National Commissioner of Police. So it's only right that he should take a stand against corruption because he was a victim of corruption himself. And that's why I took this case to him. And I'm pleased to say that him and uh, the men under his uh, men and women under his control, um, they investigated this matter and brought it uh, to a point where it can now be prosecuted. And I'm also, I shouldn't forget to mention that I, 
I made representations to the Director of Public Prosecution in Johannesburg, um, uh, Andrew Chauke, and uh, despite the fact that it's one of his senior colleagues that reports indirectly to him, uh, he made no bones about it. Within a few days of seeing the docket, he 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 gave instructions that the um, the warrants of arrest should be issued and these people should be brought to justice. So there is a golden thread of goodness in our criminal justice system, and if we have hope, which I have. Otherwise, I would have been long gone. If we had hope, um, I think justice will prevail and we'll see these people go to prison. And I'm hoping that all three of them will get a minimum sentence of 15 years. Talking about hope, Paul, you've prob- you're well aware of how whistleblowers in this country are assassinated, vilified, financially ruined, discredited. Do you still believe that the good guys win in the end. Well, we have to turn the clock back, you know. Um, if I turn the pl- clock back 20, what, 23 years, I was a whistleblower. I was on the board of Airports Company South Africa and I saw a corrupt chief of police working together with corrupt individuals at the airports and between them, They had control of the security over the 10 airports in South Africa through a a, a corrupt guy who was subsequently convicted and sent to prison. Um, And between them, um, they they, they had the potential of bringing our country to its knees. So I decided to take a stand and I, I blew the whistle. As a result, I became unemployed. Jackie Celebi had a lot more clout than me. He went behind my back. We had a new chief executive of the airports company who took legal advice and summarily um, terminated my my contract of employment. Um, and I was left then unemployed with, with not a cent in my pocket. Um, well, I had assets, obviously, but I had no, no liquidity. I had to start selling off my assets and I decided to hell with it. I'm going after them. And I went after Jackie Celebi and, you know, the rest, as I say, is history. And I rebuilt my business. Uh, I had a property business, which I had to stop investing. I had to sell off my property assets, which I did. And I had to rebuild my business from scratch. Um, and fortunately, I've been able to build it back up again. But... Um, being a whistleblower is not an easy journey. You have to be strong. And sometimes the whistleblowers don't realize how strong they have to be until they're six months or a year into the journey. Um, but I think the the tide in South Africa will eventually turn and whistleblowers will get the same level of protection as they do in places like Australia or Canada where you know, they, they they protected more. And if you look at the legislation, the Protected Disclosures Act protects whistleblowers to the extent of they can get a, a, a maximum payout of two years' salary. Well, two years' salary isn't going to last very long if you're in your 30s and you're going to be unemployed for the next 20 years. So um, 
you know, people need to employ whistleblowers, providing they're genuine whistleblowers, because some of the whistleblowers I've come across, um, they're whistleblowers to cover their own inadequacies. In other words, they, the whistleblowing is more of a retaliation rather than um, a heartfelt whistleblowing, and you have to differentiate between the two. But I think the future of South Africa still looks good. If it didn't, you know, I've got other passports. As is well known, I was arrested for being in possession of other passports. Falsely arrested, I should add. I was acquitted on those charges. Um, but I, I have enough passports to be able to live pretty much anywhere on the planet I want. And I choose Johannesburg. For those of us who don't have passports, what do you say? Have courage and keep going. Well, if you don't have passports, your, your case is perhaps different than mine because I have um, alternative places where I could go and stay if I want to. But I still decide that I want to stay here because it's my home and has been now for 40 years. So if you've lived somewhere for 40 years, why should you throw it all down the, the tubes just to go and live somewhere else? And if you don't have passports, actually you're in a stronger position than someone like me because it's like gambling. I can afford to gamble because if I lose, I can just pack my bags and go. But you can't afford to gamble. Therefore, you have to go all in. You have to, to you know, go for it and make sure you win. And that's the same with all sides. And by the way, you know, we're in a privileged position because for the most part, people like you and I, we, we're comfortable from a financial point of view. What about all the poor people out there? There are millions of South Africans who are either unemployed or employed but living on what I consider to be unlivable wages, and they have to survive. And they have to survive not only the trials and tribulations of a difficult life where uh, the electricity is on and then it's off and then it's on and then it's off, but they also are victims of fraud and corruption. In fact, they are bigger victims because it's the money that should have been used to uplift their lives, which has been stolen. It's their future that's been stolen. It's not my future that's been stolen. It's their future. And those people, sadly, uh, are, the, are the biggest victims. And if anything, they need to take a strong, hard look at who is committing the corruption, why the corruption is being committed, and the best way to deal with it, I think, is when the um, when the elections come around. And I'm, I try to stay apolitical, so I'm not saying who should they vote for, but um, they must consider what's been going on. Under the, the, the government of the last 25 years, it's close to 30 years now, isn't it? Actually, it's 29 years. So under the government of the last 29 years, we've had uh, what started off to be an African dream has become an African nightmare. And the people that have suffered the most, it's not the white people, although there are some that have suffered. The majority of the suffering has been our African brothers and sisters who are living in abject poverty and their future has been stolen, and they have no hope. They certainly have no hope while they have a government that condones all this theft and corruption. 
Thank you. That was Paul O'Sullivan speaking to Biz News. Mm-hmm.